Many of us very much struggle with the Old Testament because we're like, it seems like God is a God of wrath. What's happening in the Old Testament? Are these miracles true? Am I supposed to understand all of this? And one of the ways to start understanding is really to see how did Jesus understand? What did Jesus know? Welcome back to How to Study the Bible podcast. My name is Nicole Eunice, and I am so glad for these few minutes that we get to spend together in expectation of what God has for us. Truly, that is the attitude I want to invite you to, that when we come into God's word, even when something doesn't quite make sense or we just begin to ponder or question, that can be a glorious thing. That can be a good thing. That can be a place where we are um, spending time with God in the inner sanctuary of our hearts even as we go through our day, even as we continue in daily life. And really at the end of the day, what this podcast is all about and really what I think we're all called to in this life is not more Bible knowledge, but actually space to experience God. And what we're learning in this series that we've titled True Life as we look at the temptation of Christ and how that teaches us about uh, the culmination of his ministry as we lead into Easter, as Jesus began his public ministry, what that looked like and how that is a precursor and a sign of what he actually fulfilled on the cross. As we do that together, what we're really being um, invited into is not um, the ability to like name verses as we go through our day, although that's a wonderful thing, but actually the ability to experience the presence of God in our life, to believe that as we learn about God's way through his word, and as we become more and more um, filled up with his word, he gives us what we need, that the spirit will instruct us through his word, and that we will find that we are able to resist um, the ways of the world, the ways that we may be drawn into insecurity or anxiety or self-serving action, that we can actually resist those things because our hearts are being filled up with what we really need, which is the presence of God, the beauty of God, a dependence on God that puts us in our rightful place on the earth. Woo, wasn't planning on saying all that today, but man, I guess I needed it. I hope you did too. So we're going to continue in our series. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. What we do here is we spend about 15 minutes um, just in a passage of scripture. We're using a study Bible, really just a study Bible and four simple questions that you can find if you just circle back in the podcast. And I would invite you to at least listen to last week where I give you kind of an overview of this framework. But wherever you are, Join us because I believe that when we are in God's word, he always has life for us. He always has something to teach us. So we are in um, a passage in Matthew chapter four, and we're continuing on. And we talked about the temptation of comfort last week. And this week we're talking about the temptation of validation. So let's go into our word. If you want to just join me by taking a deep breath and asking God to reveal his insights to us. We know from scripture that we can actually pray for increased knowledge and wisdom and insight into God's word. So we're going to do that together right now. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would open our ears to receive your words, not just as words, but truly as knowledge, wisdom, and discernment for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 5, Matthew chapter five, 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city. This is Jesus that we're talking about. 
the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, here we go. We're going to start with our first question. What does it say? So as we begin to look at this passage and see it playing out, you may notice a few things that you would want to know, perhaps underline holy city. What is the holy city? You may wonder to yourself, stand on the highest point of the temple. Are they like teetering on the top of a steeple or what is this supposed to look like in my mind? So you might have a couple of questions from that verse. And as you go into verse six, you may notice right away what we talked about last week, that we've got this sort of if-then conditional statement or temptation, truly, that Satan is inviting Jesus to. He's he's putting um, a identifier in the beginning, right? If this is who you say you are, then do this thing, right? So in this case, it's if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now, you may notice, for it is written, if you underline that, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, you'll know that this phrase, it is written, is referring to a different place in scripture. And your your study Bible will show you in the cross-references where that different place is. So I would make a note of that as well. I want to know where this comes from. Um, and I'm noticing, as you probably are too, okay, now, last temptation, we just had Satan being like, hey, take care of your own needs, right? Because you're hungry. This temptation, we have leveled up, right? Um, the enemy of God, this Satan, has actually now quoted scripture to Jesus. And this is, you should take note of the fact that just because you know scripture doesn't mean that you are worshiping God or following him. So he's using scripture now against Jesus. And Jesus then answers and it says, it is also written. So again, we're going to underline, we're going to want to know where Jesus is quoting. So what does it say? The devil quotes scripture. It doesn't mean you're following it if you quote it. And we see this similar temptation formula as we saw last week. If you are who you say you are, and now he's also saying if God is also who he says he is, because he quotes scripture. So he's like, okay, first, I'm now going to call into question your identity, and I'm going to call into question God's identity by using scripture against you. So that's kind of what is happening here. And now, of course, we've sort of questioned and left ourselves those question marks on the things that we want to look into today. We want to understand the holy city, the top of the temple. Yeah. We want to know where uh, Satan is quoting from. We want to know where Jesus is quoting from and how that might help us better understand this passage. Okay, so let's look at those couple of things together as we proceed to question two. What's the backstory? Okay, so what do we know about the high point of the temple? This is where I use my NIV study Bible or your NLT study Bible. Hopefully you have a study Bible. Um, it's going to have extensive study notes and every part of this pa uh, scriptures in that we use in this podcast. I'm not going to commentaries. I'm not going to some of my deeper helps when it comes to preparing for preaching and teaching. Teaching because I want you guys to see that you can do this yourself. Like you can do this kind of study that even within just a study Bible, you're going to find a trove of treasure and knowledge and wisdom that helps you actually understand scripture. So I'm going to my text note in chapter four, verse
verse 5, and it talks about the temple. And this is what it says. The temple, including the entire temple area, had been rebuilt by Herod the Great. The courtyard had been greatly enlarged to about 330 by 500 yards. So again, when we're trying to understand a passage, imagining it in your mind can be super helpful. So 330 by 500 yards is huge. Okay. So a football field is a hundred yards. So it's five football fields wide and three football fields deep. So if you can imagine, I mean, that almost makes me feel like I'm looking out over uh, a tarmac, like where an airplane would land. And it says an enormous retaining wall made of massive stones was built to support this platform, this huge platform, right? And on that platform is the temple. So when we think about Satan bringing Jesus to the highest point of the temple, imagine the vista, imagine the view that he would be looking at as he looked down over this massive, almost tarmac of, of this holy city that was also built on a hill. So it's looking down at the city. So we know that we're in this sort of majestic space. And he's saying to Jesus, hey, use signs and wonders to accomplish your purposes. And I'm going to now quote scripture to support this temptation that you should now use your power to show everyone who you really are, right? So when Satan quotes scripture, he's actually quoting from Psalm 91. And you can find that because you just look at your cross-reference and it's going to tell you where that quote is coming from. And this is the rest of the quote, okay? So this is one of the, the best things that you can do when you, when Jesus is quoting scripture, quoting the Old Testament, whenever you're reading about Jesus. If you want to understand how the Old and New Testament connect, when you look at how Jesus uses the Old Testament, it can give us those clues and that knowledge of how to understand how both of them connect, how Jesus interprets the Old Testament. Many of us very much struggle with the Old Testament because we're like, it seems like God is a God of wrath. What's happening in the Old Testament? Are these miracles true? Am I supposed to understand all of this? And one of the ways to start understanding is really to see how did Jesus understand? What did Jesus know? So Satan is going to quote from Psalm 91, and it says this in verse 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So if we go into Psalm 91 and you did a quick sort of skim of Psalm 91 and try to understand using your framework, what is Psalm 91 basically about? What you're going to find in Psalm 91 is that this is a psalm about the protection of God, right? There is a difference between being protected by God and testing God, testing God to see if he is who he says he is. And I love that verse 13 says this. So we just read Psalm 91, 11 and 12. That's the part that Satan quotes to Jesus. But look at what it says in verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. And we know that in scripture, the serpent, the cobra, those are um, archetypes of Satan, that those images of the snake are used to describe Satan. It's almost like um, it's it's like the, the enemy is so dumb to go and use a quote that Jesus would know the rest of the chapter and that the very next thing is like God saying, hey, hey, I'm going to give you victory over this temptation. I'm going to give you victory over this um, Satan who has dominion over this world. 
And Jesus would know all that. And he would know in Psalm 91 that the purpose of Psalm 91 was not about testing God to see who he is, but it was about trusting God for his protection and provision. So when Satan uses this couple of verses out of context, you probably heard us talk about that before, that it's so important to understand context. And can you imagine being in a weak space? Maybe you are in a weak space right now. Can you imagine being at your lowest, those times where you're either spiritually hungry or physically hungry, where you feel like your resistance is down? And then a, a verse comes to mind out of context. This, this voice that says, hey, don't you need to know? Like, is God really who he says he is? But it's because Jesus knew the context that he could resist and not fall for what Satan was trying to bait him with, to, to tempt him with. And so Jesus answers Satan, right? And we want to look at that answer as well. So in the backstory of Jesus's answer, we know he says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus is applying and interpreting scripture at a higher level. He's finding the principles just like we talk about. And so when he quotes, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Okay, so now we've got a little clue. Now we're on a journey because we know, okay, we should probably understand what happened at Massa since that's what Jesus is quoting. Okay, so I did a search. Just You can just go to a, a, a free Bible search site. I love using BibleStudyTools.com. It's actually the sponsor of this podcast, Bible, BibleStudyTools.com, a free search that gives you study references, all kinds of great, great tools. And I just put in Massa, M-A-S-S-A-H, so that I could find the places that that is mentioned. And there's five different times that Massa is used as an example of not putting the Lord your God to the test. And Exodus 17 is where we actually read about what happened at Massa. And we don't have tons of time to do all of that. But what I want you to know is what happened here is the Israelites were in the desert. They had been brought out of bondage, brought out of Egypt. They are experiencing the miracle of God leading them. God is leading them by a fire at night, by a cloud during the day. He has provided for them over and over again. But they have come to a place where they do not have water. And they begin to grumble against Moses. It actually says that Moses was afraid they were going to kill him because they didn't have water. And they were they were beginning to doubt, or more than beginning, they were fully doubting that God is who he says he is, even though God had continued to miraculously provide for them, beginning with removing them from bondage, continuing with parting the Red Sea, showing up as a fire pot at night and a cloud during the day, providing again and again and again, showing who his character really is. But in a moment of weakness, when they felt like God was not with them, they grumbled against God. They tested God. And God remembered that as disobedience because even though he had provided again and again and again, in their weakness, in that moment where they were like, we don't have water, they turned on him. They turned on God and they turned on God's sort of figurehead at that time, which was the, was Moses. And Moses went to God like, they're about to kill me. And so when, when we're looking at what Jesus is saying, he's like, hey, Satan, I understand what disobedience looks like. And disobedience looks like calling into doubt God's provision. And I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's like, no way. So we see all of this happening in this passage, okay? So we're going to go on to, 
to principle number uh, or question number three, excuse me, what does it mean? So this is where we talk about principles. So if we're going to take in this rapid fire Bible study on what's happening in this moment of interaction between Satan and Jesus, we're going to learn a couple of things, right? And I think we see a theme developing in both the way that Satan uses scripture and misinterprets it and takes it out of context and the way that Jesus uses scripture and takes us to a story that is very helpful to know about this moment. In this moment, when Jesus's temptation is validate yourself, go ahead and show the people who you say that you are. Go ahead and prove that you are who you say you are outside of obedience to your father, right? And in that moment, we learn there's a difference between claiming and sort of forcing or claiming the, the truth of who God is, claiming the promises of God. There's a difference between claiming the promises of God and testing God for who he says he is. When we test God for who he says he is, we say, God, prove yourself to me. And whenever we're using that kind of spirit and that kind of attitude, we're actually placing ourselves above God. God, you need to show up for me in a very certain way in order for me to know who you really are. And what we see is that when when the Israelites did that in Exodus, They did that after God had proven who he really was over and over again. It's not like God had never shown himself, that there had never been miracles, that there had never been signs and wonders. It was that in a moment when they didn't feel like God was there, instead of trusting and claiming what God says and who he is based on what they had experienced in the past, they just lived in the present with God is no longer with us. And friends, how often this happens to us as well. Even though God has shown up for us in the past, even though we're experiencing his blessings and provisions, even though we've had those moments where we're like, oh, I've been forgiven. I've been set free. The moment that we hit that weakness, it is so tempting to try to be like, if God really is who he says he is, then I'm going to ask him to, to validate himself. Like I'm going to, I'm tempted to test God. And we see here in Jesus's resistance of that testing, that he uh, testing when God tests us, it yields obedience and trust. But when we try to test God, it yields rebellion. It's us saying, God, I'm going to need you to operate on my terms instead of saying, God, I want to open myself up to experience your provision. I want to open myself up to resist this urge to try to test you. And to actually show up looking for you, opening my eyes for any way that you want to show yourself to me. Final question, what does it mean for me? So this is another chance to reiterate the power of God's word and the context of God's word, like that interpretation actually matters. That when we spend this time in scripture and we don't just rush ahead, we don't just read it and like let it go and as if we'd never looked at it. When we slow down and we we actually are get get a little uncomfortable, we engage more deeply, we try to understand what God is teaching us, we pray in faith that God will give us more wisdom and more knowledge and more discernment. We actually we enter into God's word like God, I need you to help me understand this. When we do that, we are less likely to be taking verses out of context the way that Satan did. We we get to understand that this matters. Interpretation matters. So a couple of questions for you to take with you when we ask, what does this mean for me in this passage in Matthew 4? First question is this, am I honest with myself when my doubt or discouragement is actually disobedience? 
Am I, am I listening closely enough to understand if what I'm doubting is God's character and being disobedient toward what he's already shown me, kind of holding in contempt his blessings because I'm in a hard moment? Is my doubt really disobedience? And the second question is, am I equipped to answer my doubt or discouragement with the word of God? So this is what we see Jesus doing in in the midst of a difficulty, in the midst of a moment where he would be at just the lowest point. Don't forget, he'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. We see that Jesus or Satan comes to him at an opportune time. This idea that the enemy is looking for places of weakness to enter in in the hopes that he can call into question God's character in our life, that he can call into question our own sort of salvation, our own understanding of what it means to have a heavenly father who loves us, who provides for us, who's with us. If in those moments of weakness, we're going to have that, are we prepared to answer with the word of God? So when you ask yourself the question, is this really disobedience, regardless of the answer, whether or not it is when you're doubtful or discouraged, what you want to be able to say is, Am I equipped to answer my doubt, to answer my discouragement with the word of God? And that can start right now. You can use BibleStudyTools.com and just look up a keyword like, what do you need more of from God? Do you need more peace? Do you need more joy? Do you need more strength? Do you need more of an understanding of his love for you? Put in any of those words. Find yourself a verse today. Write that verse down somewhere on a three by five card, on a post-it note, on your hand. Take it with you. Have an answer for when you feel discouraged or doubtful, because the answer is in God's word. He wants to provide for you so that you can know his blessing and that knowledge in your life. What good news we can find when we actually just place ourselves under God's word and say, God, show up for us. Thanks, you guys. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to How to Study the Bible with Nicole Eunice, a production of lifeaudio.com and the Salem Web Network. This episode was produced by Kelly Gibbons and our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey, and edited by Stephen Sanders. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. It really does help people find us. To learn more about Nicole, you can check out her website at NicoleUnis.com. Her book on how to study the Bible is called, Help, My Bible is Alive. And you can find a link to that, plus a link to Nicole's site, in today's show notes. Have you ever attempted to read the entire Bible? Did you do it, or did you only make it part way? I'm John Stonge, and I host a podcast that will make it possible for you to make it through the entire Bible, one chapter at a time. I've been hosting the Chapter a Day Audio Bible Podcast since 2015, and every single day of the week, I read one chapter of Scripture, then follow that up with a time of prayer. And if you're looking for daily insights and inspiration directly from God's Word, I hope you'll give the Chapter a Day Audio Bible a listen. You can find it at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.